marketing through performance advertising community outreach and technology be captivated by the people who are leading the wave of change in the online marketplace this is who ad tech is your weekly radio show get behind the scenes with industry giants be privy to the insider track witness the newest technologies make sure you're in the scene each week with ad tech connect you're connected now with your host Welcome to AdTech Connect on Webmaster Radio. I'm Pete Blackshaw of IntelliSeq out in Cincinnati, and I welcome you to the program. This is my second program hosting this event in anticipation of the upcoming AdTech New York. My very first guest today, many of you have heard of him. He blogs well or has a lot of Google juice, um, so to speak. His name is Jeff Einstein, and he um, is a real digital marketing pioneer. He founded Einstein and Sandem, which was acquired by DDB um, Advertising Agency, and has also authored a host of computer guides and how-to, and you name it. In fact, I'm going to actually punt over to Jeff to give us a better bio on his background. Welcome, Jeff. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks very much, Peter. Very happy to be here. We appreciate the invite. Uh, thanks to you and to Susan uh, Blatton for inviting me to participate. You bet. Uh, did you want a little bio information? Yeah, tell me about a little bit about yourself. You know, what brings uh, you to this place? Why do you have standing to say even a word about interactive marketing? <laughs> well, I'm a bit of an old-timer in new media. I, uh, as you uh, mentioned, I co-founded the first interactive advertising agency in the nation back in 1984 with my Was partner, Jerry Sandham. I guess in 1984 it must have been the first. Yeah. You guys in CKS, and wow, that's impressive. Yeah, they were. Uh, you know, the, we, we weren't uh, we weren't alone for long. The uh, the field got pretty populated pretty quickly. Uh, but you know, it's nice to be the only guys out there. But it's, it's much better to be the best. You bet. In the field, so uh, I stayed with an uh, active management with Einstein and Santa Inc. until the early 1990s. Then went off to uh, had a couple years off for good behavior in Hawaii with my brother Mike, where we put together. Uh, but became the nation's first destination-based home-away-from-home shopping network, cable shopping network called Room Service Hawaii, wow. which sold indigenous Hawaiian products to hotel tourists in their Waikiki hotel rooms. I uh, stayed with that for a few years. We came back just in time to uh, witness the sale of Einstein and Phantom Inc. to DMB&B. 
Okay. And uh, about that time, the internet started heating up, and uh, and I was looking for ways to put some of my highfalutin media theory to the test, and the internet seemed like a choice opportunity. So I went to work primarily as a hired gun for a number of different uh, startup and uh, and more mature enterprises, uh, essentially uh, to help them as a consultant to help them exercise their exit strategies and get from point A to point B. Uh, and that's pretty much what I've done over the last uh, several years. I've uh, you know, basically helped a couple of different agencies uh, get acquired. I've uh, participated in a very high-profile, high-tech IPO. I've taken uh, an existing uh, digital agency from a single base, uh, a single office, 22-employee shop to a 300-plus employee shop uh, with eight offices, both domestic and international. I basically was brought on to take them global. And uh, currently working as a, uh, as a marketing and strategic consultant for uh, a number of various shops here in New York City and, uh, and around the country. Uh, basically doing the same thing, playing the same trade. Wow. I'm about, about to launch a, a new uh, enterprise with my brother, Mike. Uh, it's actually a repackaged enterprise. It's been in operation for about nine years now. But it's something called the uh, the syndication store, hmm. which we're very excited about, and that's going to have a new uh, a new website up and running within the next two weeks at syndicationstore.com. Well, we'll come back to that in a moment because I definitely want to hear more about that. But let's go back to 1984 because when sure. I, when you first said it, I was thinking 1994, which was when I discovered the the web you know mosaic browser. But 1984, I was a freshman at UC Santa Cruz, and I'd just taken a class on the nature of computers, and I got my first email account, Unix C, and you're, you had already started kind of the first, one of the first kind of interactive advertising agencies. So I got to ask you, what were you thinking back then that played out according to plan? What went in the complete opposite direction, or all the kind of principles and the foundations pretty much endured the test of time? Because that is, that's impressive. That's 20 years ago. What were you thinking back then? Well, I, you know, I was coming off the uh, publication of a, of a big uh, how-to uh, computer introductory book series, uh, which is basically the first Computers for Dummies series, published by Harko Brace Jovanovich uh, back in the same year, in 1984. Um, there were seven titles in the series, and it was called Einstein's Computer Guides. Uh, and I, uh, as a means to promote the series and myself in this new market, this emerging market, uh, had been hired as a corporate and national spokesperson by a couple of different companies, one of which uh, put me on the road uh, to do the, uh, the trade shows and sign books and give away uh, books and, and uh, do the talk show circuit, uh, all the media. Uh, and the guy who was heading up that effort on behalf of the agency who had the uh, the client I was representing was Jay Sandham, who later became my partner with Einstein and huh. Sandham, Inc. And it was clearly the byproduct of two guys with way too much spare time on their hands. But I was uh, beginning to see as a consultant, as an emerging consultant back then, stepping into a lot of media clients and agency clients, 
I was beginning to see the results of secondary and tertiary buying rounds of PCs, and suddenly everybody had this this enormous computing power at their own disposal on their own desktops. And Jay and I just got together one day and started talking and thought this is an interesting captive audience. And it wouldn't be a nice idea to start marketing to these guys instead of selling them the way traditional demo discs did. When you buy a new piece of hardware, you get a demo disc with it that would extol all the features and the benefits of something you've already paid for. We thought, wouldn't it be a nice idea to promote products and services that people hadn't already purchased? Excellent. Where were you completely wrong? Come on, you got to volunteer something where you just thought, you know, this is where it's going and you just learned the hard way. Um, well, everything for me has been the hard way. I don't want to make it sound as if it, you know, I, I've, I've never had an easy time in things. Uh, I may give the opposite impression at times, but the, the truth is that all of it was hard. All of it was difficult. There were a lot of naysayers on route. There were a lot of people who just thought we were crazy. Uh, the, the mainstream advertising industry, by and large, was, was not thrilled with the idea and looked at it askance. And that was pretty much the case up until four or five years ago, um, when, when, the, you know, when the Internet basically took hold and, and started uh, driving dollars southward from the above-the-line agencies into the below-the-line shops, which digital marketing, where basically digital marketing resides. Um, so it, it's, you know, we had our doubts and we had our, our rough spots and, and uh, difficult moments in sustaining an agency where basically we had to go out and persuade everybody not only that this was a viable medium for their advertising and marketing dollars at the time, but we also had to persuade them later on, a few years into it, that we were the best guys for the job. Right, right. It got very populated very quickly. And then how did you... Um... You know, so then, so then come full circle up to, you know, mid-90s when things started to really kind of heat up. I mean, what were some of the new developments that tweaked your outlook and thinking about the future of the interactive marketing space? Well, for me, the, the, uh, the biggest development in the, in the, technology, the, the, in the technology side, where there were two big developments for me. One was the evolution of graphics. And where it got to the point where we could finally render anything we could dream of. And the other was the evolution of sound, of audio. Hmm. So yeah, that, when that the video games started, real you know, networks, PC-based sure. video games started pushing those that, that technology envelope on both the audio and the uh, and the graphic side, we realized that, well, I realized then that that this was a medium whose time was just about to was just on the cusp and just about to emerge. I also saw an interesting thing happening, uh, just in terms of digital work productivity tools that the that you know back in the 1950s all the consumer technologies were basically designed to eliminate housework mm-hmm. and grunt work and so we brought them into our homes and they created spare time for us leisure time which we then used to do you know, pursue other things but in the 19 late in 1980s and early 1990s I started to see and witness a migration of productivity work tools from the office into the home, which reached its zenith around the time we invited the Internet into our homes. And none of these technologies were designed to create leisure time. They were all designed to increase productivity. (laughs) So, you know, we wound up in a situation where when the dot-com bubble burst in 2000, that, you know, all the... the, uh, 
the sort of utopian promises went away and we were still left with the productivity tools which we had invited into our homes and made our lives a lot quicker and a lot more tougher, right. I think, in certain regards. So that was the, you know, back in 1994 when I saw this, this technology basically migrating from the office into our homes, I had some serious misgivings about it, which I couldn't put my finger on at the time, and which eventually led to me uh, going uh, a couple years ago to the good folks at Media Post and proposing a column, a weekly column, Einstein's Corner, which would explore the adverse effects of our reliance, our, our fealty to and obsession with these technologies on our own abilities to conduct business. Hmm. Well, you were so ahead of the curve in thinking that through. That's what I've been working with uh, primarily over the past couple of years, in addition to the consulting business. So what are some of the big, uh, big trends we all need to fixate on as we try to figure out how we you know, move, the, move the ball on our own respective interactive endeavors? I think the clear trend is mobile. Okay. It's absolutely the clear trend. Now that iPod has video... Is that a real trend or is that just a cliche? Because I hear everybody say that. What the heck does that really mean? What it means is basically you'll be able to carry TV with you wherever you go. Are we really going to do it? Yeah, I think that, that the I, I think the, all the the writing is on the wall. I think it's undeniable right now that we have uh, we carry our music with us wherever we go. We carry our cell phones with us, uh, which wherever we go, there will be certain segments of the population, teenage girls, other segments of the population uh, that, that that will respond very well to the delivery of compact syndicated messaging. You know, on two mobile devices. But how do we reconcile that with the fact that every time you walk into Circuit City or another electronic store, the the flat screen TVs get bigger and gargantuan? Do we have two seemingly kind of competing trends, or are they all happily compatible in the diversified mix of how we consume media? Well, all of those basically are wrapped up in what I call our addiction to the media. You know, the 60-inch flat screen, plasma screen TV is just the equivalent of opening up your vein and pouring the drug inside. Okay. Uh, for the rest of us who don't can't afford that kind of uh, you know, media environment, we have to make do with smaller things that we carry around, and we can generate smaller fixes on a more frequent basis. Is it going to satisfy a genuine consumer need, or are we just going to dial up the whole attention deficit disorder? I don't think there is much consumer need, to tell you the truth anymore. I think most consumer need is generated. It's manufactured. I don't think that nobody, nobody demanded Charles in charge. You know, nobody demanded you know, 90% of the things that are out on the market now. Things are marketed to people. They're well, not, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm referring to just general convenience and, you know, making life simpler. I mean, are we really heading down that path, or is that just a marketing fiction? Uh, yeah, I think it is a marketing fiction. I think part of the mythology behind technology is that it makes our lives simpler. And I think up to a certain extent it does. But what it really does is it makes it simpler for us to consume. Yeah. Well, I think that ties into what you were saying earlier on. But let's talk yeah. a little bit more about mobile. So give us a little bit more flavor and color around how the game is going to change. How do you think that's going to impact, you know, marketers and advertisers? You've got smaller space to work with, but obviously richer media to absorb. Um, well, I think that what will happen is that uh, as you know, there was an interesting development not too long ago where AOL paid $25 million for Weblogs, Inc., 
for the uh, a media rep firm that basically you know sell, sold and trafficked advertising to eighty or so you know high traffic weblogs. Smart I think buy, what bad that did buy. was signal a, a, a shift in in our thinking. You know, sort of cap the shift in our thinking, whereas just five or ten years ago, we were still consumed with that 80, within the 80-20 rule. We were still consumed with the idea of the 80% representing the volume and the valuation. But what does it mean? That, what, what, what's the takeaway? Content matters again? We just did a big deal with AOL, too, on syndicating our blog content. Um, I mean, is, it, is content suddenly... You know, maybe because of all these, you know, mobile devices and different ways of, um, you know, matching information with different experiences, is content suddenly a bigger deal? Well, it's a bigger deal to the extent that the pipeline is bigger. Every time the pipeline opens up an extra notch, we need more content in very, more various forms to satisfy the appetite of the band generated by the bandwidth. So it's a function of filling the bandwidth. It's why it's possible to have 500 stations on your cable TV and not be able to find anything to watch. Now, in your bio, you use the term, we are all born as crack babies in the great age of addiction. Does that relate to the mobile space? Well, I'm glad you fixated on that particular line. Okay, Sorry, you put it down much. there. It was low-hanging uh, fruit for me to pick off your bio. Yeah, okay. Uh, that, that, uh, no good, I'll, I'll file that one under no good deed goes unpunished. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think that uh, that the default condition nowadays, you know, the Middletown study uh, uh, that was released in the spring of 1994 out of Ball State University concluded that the ad, and this was the first large-scale observational study of people's uh, American media consumption habits. And they concluded that the average American watches 11 poor, or excuse me, consumes 11.7 hours of media each and every day across its various formats. Now, that's what started me thinking, or basically helped solidify my thinking about media as a possible addiction, because it's hard to explain that level of consumption when you think that we spend more time consuming media than we do anything else except breathing. When we're awake, and as the and access points increase, that's likely to increase. That I presume in in anything short in any format short of compulsive behavior and or addiction. <laughs> well, which leads me to the next question: So, is there a twelve-step program for media technology junkies or addicts? Well, you know, when I first started thinking about these uh, about media as an addiction. Um, I, I, that was one of the first questions that came to mind. So, what do we do about it? And I started looking into twelve-step programs. You know, and I've had my own bouts on and off over the years with compulsive behaviors and addictions that I've so, sought help for through twelve-step programs, which are basically the only things available out there in this society right now. And I've since come to conclude that that twelve-step programs and and uh, abstinence. Zero-tolerance-based programs are not particularly effective and wouldn't be particularly effective in terms of dealing with media obsession or addiction. I think it has, it has to do much more with building community and the effects of, um, of media on our communities at large. And I think that all the, all the deleterious and, and, and damaging side effects that you can attribute to any addiction can also be attributed to the breakdown of community. 
Now, one thing that struck me about the recent natural disasters such as Hurricane Katrina is how suddenly and completely cut off people can be when simple things happen. The electricity yeah. goes out, cell phone batteries die, Internet connections don't work or aren't available. Are we that dependent on simple technologies that civilization, you know, that civilization can crumble so quickly? I have an I have an exercise. You know, I've been working on this since 1994 when I first had that that you know that little itch in the way back in my head that I couldn't identify. And I, I could I knew there was a downside to it, but I couldn't see what it was because the marketer, the interactive marketer in me, saw nothing but blue sky. So when I started working on that, I started thinking about technology, and the media is our, our primary interface with technology nowadays, um, and. When I started thinking about it along those, along those lines, uh, it, it occurred to me that, that it might be interesting to put together kind of like a suite of diagnostic tools to measure our reliance on technology and media. And one of the exercises I came up with was something called technology inventory. And all it requires is that you, when the, from the moment you wake up one morning for the next several hours, you create a technology log. You simply record every encounter with every technology that you can identify. Sounds big, And you brother. classify each technology as either a foreground technology, ones that require active participation, like turning on a light or turning on, and turning on a, a TV or a radio or checking your email or whatever or jumping into the shower, or background technology, which are those ambient te- technologies that we tend to dismiss. Now, behind every foreground technology is a corresponding and much larger, much more integral background technology. When you turn on the, turn the light switch, the lights go on, but, you know, there's all sorts of wires in the wall. There's a power plant and, and, and you know, the stations along the way. There are, there are corresponding technologies that bring the fuel to the, to, to the, uh, to the uh, uh, electrical plant. And so for every foreground technology, there are these enormous background technologies that we just don't, that don't come to our awareness. And those things only happen, will only enter our awareness when, as you say, they suddenly stop working. That's right. Well, that's an excellent perspective. I have one last question. I just had twins. And wow, congratulations. I um, you know, set up a blog, I'm really into this parenting thing. And you're now writing a tune-out and drop-out parenting column. What advice do you have for today's parents who, want, who still want to have a modicum, a wee small amount of control over what their children are exposed to? What's in our toolkit? Well, I, I think that, first of all, I should say that, that I have stopped over the last few months, I have stopped writing my columns because I found they were, they, they were becoming too diversionary for me. Okay. But, while I, but the advice I would have but given... But I still want you to talk about parenting. ...in, in that, uh, in that uh, capacity as a columnist would have been that if, this is not a function of abstinence. There's no way to, to, to eliminate media from our lives, and it won't work to try. If you suppress something, if you suppress some sort of behavior like media consumption or something else that threatens to be compulsive or addictive, then it will just pop up somewhere else. Addictions travel laterally in our lives, and they're part of our, our lifestyle coping strategies. They come and go in our lives. So 
So abstinence has a, has a, a tendency, basically, to suppress one behavior that then reappears sometimes in spades with another behavior entirely. So Jeff, my, you've my given us a wealth of perspective. We could probably talk thinking. for several hours. In fact, I think we have to have yet another session just to learn about your next startup, because I'm sure a lot of folks are wondering what the heck is going on. And um, we um, really appreciate you spending time with us. Well, my, it's my pleasure. And I, we'll I see you at Ad Tech, right? meeting people at the Ad Tech show. I'll be there on Monday and Wednesday. Okay. And, I'll be there uh, as well. So I hope to meet you in person. Uh, come by, Find out whether you're the real deal. Rent, I think you are. So, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure, Pete. Okay, all the best. Congratulations on all your achievements. Thank you. Likewise on yours. Well, just getting there. <laughs> you humble me. <laughs> Thank you. 60-day free advertising trial on the best of the web directory. That's BOTW.org, the Internet's oldest directory since 1994. We know what you want, and we've got what you need. And hey, if you can get some free online advertising in this world with no strings attached, feel us up. I, I, I mean, feel free to take advantage of this extraordinary offer and start your no-risk 60-day free online advertising trial today. Best of the web. BOTW.org. A rose by any other name would still be the same. Move over, Shakespeare. You need to differentiate yourself from your competition. Do it by aligning yourself with a company who has earned the trust of Jupiter Media, the NHL, and Lionsgate Films, among others. Moniker.com is the most secure ICANN-accredited register on the planet, offering you domain registration, hosting, domain sales, and acquisition services. Wrap that up with 24-7 support. That's your winning combination. M-O-N-I-K-E-R. Com. More than a name. Contrary to what your mother told you, you cannot be all things to all people. You can, however, focus on your primary business and ensure your success by outsourcing technical projects to a company who is forward-thinking, solutions-oriented, and works as a complete extension of your organization. No need to do it over and over again. SRK Consulting can develop integrated automation programs, programming in most major languages and operating systems. SRKConsulting.com. Making sure your mother is always proud. Over 4,000 clients around the world are utilizing effective content-based solutions from InfoSearch Media with the expertise of over 200 professional copywriters to work for you. Studies show that the number one factor visitors consider before making a purchase online is trust. And nothing creates more trust and loyalty than well-written, informative content. High-quality content also generates free search engine traffic content is definitely king visit infosearchmedia.com today how do you choose the right affiliate program to partner with all we're trying to do is make the most money in the least amount of time the answer is simple joebucks.com the world's leading herbal affiliate program joebucks.com is the direct manufacturer so there's no middleman this will allow you to make up to 50 percent the highest payouts on the net and also get paid twice a month sign up today and watch your income grow now back to you're connected now with your host Welcome back to Ad Tech Connect on Webmaster Radio. I'm Pete Blackshav and and I am your host. My next guest is Mike Fitzsimmons, who is another pioneer in the whole area of interactive marketing and digital delivery. Welcome, Mike. Hey there. 
good to have you on board. Let me give you a couple top lines on uh, Mike, and then I'll have open it up for him to fill in some of the in some of the gaps on his bio. Mike is the CEO of Digital Delivery Agent, which is uh, a leader in shopping-enabled programming and measurement for television shows, movies, sports, and music videos. He also uh, led product and marketing development for Something Now Incorporated, which, as many of you know, was acquired by CNET back in the uh, early 2001. And he also has quite a bit of experience from Circuit City Stores, where he, um, you know, his group was responsible for a whole host of work and driving a huge amount of revenue. Mike, what else should we know about your background before we jump into our discussion? Well, you know, I think uh, I, I've been at the heart of, of convergence, if you will, for the last decade and really understanding uh, retail technology and entertainment. Uh, at Circuit City, we launched a, a business venture that was called DivX, where we were trying to revolutionize the video-on-demand world. And although we spent $300 million doing, trying to do that and didn't, it didn't succeed, it was, it was quite enlightening as to the interminglings and the direction and changes in how content will be viewed and and how entertainment companies will need to need to uh, identify new streams of revenue. So that was a big piece in in sort of uh, getting the vision together for what we're doing today. Yeah. So tell me about it. so delivery agent. You know, product seen, product sold. What what's going on here? Yeah, so our fundamental business is enabling uh, entertainment properties to fully monetize their content by connecting advertisers, product placement advertisers, with viewers who have seen their products in their shows. So at the simplest point, what we do for a network like an NBC is we enable NBC to connect viewers of NBC programs with the advertisers of the products who have, been, who have appeared in NBC programs. So online? Uh, through any interactive channel. We actually have to look, I mean, online is the, is the meat of where the viewers are today, but we also have solutions that serve the interactive television and the mobile world. So you are enabling cross-platform integration? Correct. In a very tangible way? Correct. Tell me about your journey. So we've actually been at this for about four years, and to be quite frank, you know, this is not our idea, and we've never said that it is our idea. I mean, people have been talking about buying Jennifer Aniston's sweater for a decade. Uh, what we have done is try to take a more pragmatic look at how to serve each of the key constituents in this, in this you know, evolving space. So clearly, the entertainment companies are seeking new forms of revenue. The advertisers are seeking new quantifiable mechanisms by which to reach customers, and it is our market research indicated that the customers really like this. It's not invasive. It's not, it's not a push. The customers like to know about the things that they have seen on screen. So we really took a pragmatic approach, identifying those three constituents and building a solution that would serve each of them today, generate revenue today, and not be overly dependent on future interactive technologies, specifically ITV, which is where we had seen our predecessors fail. So what does this mean for, you know, Pete the consumer? I'm watching a TV show. How do you touch me? So the, the level of promotion, uh, and we partner with the entertainment property, with the network themselves, uh, to actually uh, promote that the consumer can shop in this way. So I'll give you a couple examples of how that takes place. Uh, a, a customer of ours, like a Martha Stewart, uh, on her daytime syndicated show, we just did a campaign with her where she promoted the sale of her poncho. It was actually the poncho she wore when she, when she, um, when she left prison. I remember it well. So she actually, in the show itself, called action for my mind. and a kidding. bumper on the show telling the users to go online to buy the poncho. Okay? Okay. 
another example would be uh, a, a, a show like All My Children on ABC, where we're selling the engagement ring that was at the center of one of the storylines, in which case they ran a five-second bumper in the middle of the show you know, with the URL on the screen promoting viewers to go to the website and buy. Uh, On-air is clearly what drives the greatest return, but these entertainment properties have such great traffic on their own online sites that, that that's, that's where we get the majority of our traffic today. So if you go to these sites, and uh, you'll see that at the, you know, throughout the entertainment properties website, we have, we have promotions. So on the show pages or on their home pages, typically we control the shop tab on the entertainment company's website. Now, on one hand, you could argue that this breathes powerful new voice um, and, you know, ROI, you know, dimension around product placement. Another argument would say, you know, maybe, just maybe, you know, some may get cynical that um, everything we see on TV has, has a click to buy. Um, how do you think about those two issues? This thing doesn't work unless the consumer, unless the consumer makes it work. So what's great about the business and about the visibility of the business is you know, it's, it's, a pu- it's a pull, not a push, and if the consumers weren't interested in it, we wouldn't be in business because we, we couldn't drive real value for the advertisers if the consumers really didn't care. That's, that's just the reality. And I think if you look around at media today and you look at the Us Weeklies and the InStyle and the People magazines and what people talk about and wanting to emulate their celebrities and emulate what they see on TV, uh, we really truly believe that there's a void in the current in the current. Uh, consumer market and people are seeking an emotional connection between the purchases that they make. Um, is, there, is there a line you don't cross, or is there still just a ton of room to grow? Um, it's a good question. I mean, we, there's certain types of content that we have. You know, news is a good example where we do, we, where we don't we don't right. offer our platform. You know, there are certain editorial. You know, the, that line is one that we're sensitive to. I think as a product placement, I mean, our our, our perspective on product placement, which we have maintained from the beginning, is that if if we start trying to over influence the content development process, this whole thing will break down. And it's key for us to ensure that the content is still good. To that end, we don't try and influence what the content producers integrate into their shows. Our perspective is whatever you put in your show, we will enable you to monetize it. But you go about your way and do what is organic, do what matches the storyline, and we will, we will enable you to monetize it. Well, indirectly, do sign a, it does assign a higher value, but I think what you're saying is, is, is well taken. I would suspect that the watch out for you would be the extent to which things that are out of out of your control, which is everyone else that's kind of jumping into the whole, you know, product placement space, do they in some way almost create a an acid rain effect around some of the players that, you know, like you that appear to be doing it, you know, in a in a fairly, you know, even handed kind of way. Um, where else is all of this going? I mean, what does the you know, it just seems like this whole on demand, we've been talking about it forever, but it's really taken off. I mean, I think RSS has put that notion on steroids. But what's it look like? I mean, what's the crystal ball tell you about the next couple of years out? You know, what's exciting for us, uh, I mean, just what's really exciting for us is that, again, each of our three key constituents, the entertainment properties, the advertisers, and the actual viewers, are responding positively to what we're doing. So the net net, as it relates at least to our, our piece of the world, is that as interactivity increases, and whether that 
that means people going online to the websites of the, the television network, or whether that means viewing the content on their mobile device, whatever, it, as long as we can get them in an, in an interactive environment, we can drive value for the advertiser and for the, for the entertainment property. So to that end, we're seeing you know, consistently increasing traffic, and that's obviously how we measure our business is the number of, of people that we touch, um, and it's uh, phenomenal growth, and we just anticipate that to increase. You know, we're, we're still gauging the ITV stuff. We do, we do you know, we on our, our R&D group, we have some pretty cool applications that, that specifically target the interactive television world, but we're also very pragmatic about how real that will be. Uh, we also have real questions about what the consumer behavior will look like in a fully interactive environment. You know, people still want to watch the program. They're not going to be clicking in the middle of the show to purchase something that they've seen while they're watching the show. Things like that, that we're sensitive to, and, and we're watching it evolve. We just, we just expect to be a piece of the evolution. Now, last year we, last week we saw lots of buzz, and in fact, our Blog Pulse product, you know, off the charts buzz around the whole new Apple iPod, which is kind of introducing a fundamentally new kind of model paradigm, whatever you want to call it, for how we consume TV shows. You know, two dollars to watch an episode of Desperate Housewives. You know, how does your business look at a trend like that? And then, you know, what questions do you ask? Is that, is that? A new opportunity space? Is that something that cannibalizes the base business? I mean, where does, how do you fit into all these evolving new forms of consumption? Yep, that's a great question. And so from a technology perspective, we've built our platform to be extensible to, to virtually any interactive platform. Uh, and that was part of our, you know, that was part very consciously early on. Uh, was our philosophy that we view all of these as additional channels. And to be quite frank, we view the inbound 800 number, the good old trusty 800 toll-free number, <laughs> as still a realistic inbound channel that we can plug into. So to us, whether it's a mobile device where we're taking an XML communication of a customer interested in making a purchase, whether it's from the remote control, whether it's uh, online, we're, we're agnostic to all of that. The key for us is to be able to have a technology platform that can plug into all of those different distribution points. And how many related players are in this mix? I mean, I'm, a, I'm an advisor for a company called Expo TV, and they're kind of trying to pioneer the whole issue of, you know, on-demand, you know, infomercials, although infomercials of a different genre than what we're typically, um, you know, thinking about. But again, this whole notion of, you know, you see it, you buy it, you interact with it. Are there a lot of spaces? I mean, are there competitors everywhere you go? And what makes you guys especially different? So there, there's, a, there's a couple of things that we do that are, are uh, proprietary to us. I mean, and our patents and our IP are focused around the actual data and the content itself. Okay. So delivery agent actually plugs in at the production level with the producers of the content. Every single thing that they use when they're producing that show is actually digitally cataloged through our production agent software, uh, and that's where our patents are, are filed around. Okay. Effectively, gives us is a is a unique view into you know the information is king in this business, and if you don't know what products are in the show, there's no way to do any of the rest of the stuff. That's right. So that that for us, that growing database, we already have over 55,000 what we call association records in that database, and that ranges from I give you a good example like a show like a Desperate Housewives where you'll see on the site you can you can search for over 150 products per episode so the, the, the key thing is that cannot be easily replicated, you know, and, and we have our patents around it. So I think that's a, that's a key differentiator.
differentiator for us. It just is, is not easy for, for someone else to come in and, 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 and do. Even, I mean, could someone like a Google jump in? I mean, they're always thinking of, you know, creative ways of crunching this or that data and video databases, and, you know, could they start to almost apply a similar model to Google AdWords where just whether they've got permission or not from the network, you know, they just know based on how they monitor that, um, you know, a certain product or feature has been showed, and then they just afford advertisers the ability to kind of sell against that? Or is that, is that too romantic the, the, and far off? The first off? piece is that you, you, you skipped over an important piece on the right side. Yes. The delivery agent has been aggressively doing the right thing, and we go to every content producer and we get the rights. That's what our contracts are about, and that's what enables us to do what we do. So it's our perspective that, that, that you need the rights to do this. So I won't comment on what they could do, but what I will say is that... But search in and of itself is kind of flirting absolutely. in a different direction. Now, there's plenty of debates over it, but, you know, you can, I'm just saying, boy, you take the, you know, this logical evolution of text-based search to these new forms of media, do you... You know, are you looking at potential competitors, or is it just you know, maybe everything you're describing is the way it's going to have to be to be legitimate? I, I would also suggest that you you could view those those companies as, as customers of ours. Okay. We we are we are you know there is a, a like channel a, a data product that we own. We're the only guys in the block with it, and it's very interesting for for companies like 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 the one you mentioned to put that data product to work within their environment. What also some of the big challenges or, or opportunities in your space? I mean, it's it's I, I couldn't imagine in a more exciting space to be in right now. Yeah, I think you brought up the point. There, there's a lot out there. You know, there's a lot of movement. This business changes every day. You know, and it, it really feels like there's a new agency popping up, popping up on the block that is in the product placement world, you know, daily. Uh, so it, what's critical for a delivery agent is to continue to build a scalable platform that adequately addresses all three of our key constituents. You know, I keep saying that, but that's that's the key thing. And and not get sort of sucked into any of the, uh, you know, the potential, the potential traps. And repeat and those key constituents just for emphasis with our audience. Yeah, on the interactive technology side, getting too far on, on pieces that aren't going to generate real value for everyone right. today. You know, that's the key thing. And, and, and but, but again, what are, the, what are those three constituents? So for us, they're the entertainment properties themselves, the advertisers, and the consumers. Okay. Um, any other kind of interesting examples of just area where, areas where you've kind of, you know, delivered meaningful, you know, value? And, uh, you know, with, with your, you got the, you got the example of the Martha Stewart. Any other kind of instances that are worth calling out to, the, to, the, to, to our listeners who are really trying to put all this, pull all this together? Yeah, what's what's great about the business too, and about the platform is they're they're not you know it's not it's not overly dependent on a particular product category. So to give you a range, and I gave you the Martha example just because that was an extreme one that got a lot mm -hmm. of press and did you know million dollars in revenue in a, in a in a small period of time. But but another you know more persistent case is we have we've driven value for you know give an example like a show the, on NBC called The Biggest Loser where there's Penta Water Company who's integrated into the program. We did a we did a campaign with Penta Water to generate leads for this. New New water that they're that they're rolling out, very successful program where they they were uh, you know the, the, the results were, were were very significant for them. Uh, so it's fantastic for us to see the platform being able to go to work for both the you know a brand like that as well as a you know a sunglass brand that was maybe in the movie Kill Bill. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of range. And I think that's the key message for us is that, look, this is not limited to just the Jennifer Aniston sweater story that you've heard for so long. This is really this is really about driving value for, you know, across the board, cross category for brands that really want to enhance the ROI of their of their product integration. Let's take a step offline and talk about Circuit City. You've been, you know, you spend a lot of time there. I mean, how is that whole shopping experience changing and to what extent are the online tools aiding, abetting, you know, compromising that experience? Um, I mean, I know, for example, you know, we're in the business of monitoring Internet discussion and we're finding in electronics, everyone prints out those forum or blog comments before they, you know, talk to the seller, at least a growing percentage, and that's obviously a cross-platform synergy. But, you know, you obviously saw a fair amount of evolution while you were there, but, you know, what are some of the big kind of offline shopping trends that we should be aware of and how does it relate to the online space? You know, I think what's challenging for a business like a Circuit City, and that was a company that was built on on great service, high touch, in-store experience, and and what you need to to maintain that is you need adequate margin on a per transaction basis. And if you remember or you think about a company like a Circuit City, the margin in a lot of those transactions was coming from upselling and cross-selling other services or other products. So specifically, you think about extended warranties or you think about financing and credit cards and you think about cross-selling accessories. What's happened is with with the, the actual margin erosion in the CE category and people going online and being able to comparison shop, those ancillary revenue streams have been challenged. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's really a case, in the Circuit City's example, they, they actually, in certain product categories, had to get rid of commissioned sales associates because the math just wouldn't work. You, know, you couldn't sell a v- you sell a VCR for $65. I can't afford to put a $12 an hour sales guy on the floor. That's right. So what, what they've had to move towards is a much more self-service environment. Um, and, it, you know, it just, it, those, are, those are difficult things for large organizations to do. Uh, and I, I think that's an ongoing challenge. We've seen, you know, we've been approached in terms of the brick-and-mortar retail opportunities. Um, there was a great company, uh, yeah, I don't know, how, uh, called Epicenter, which recently approached us. Are you familiar with these guys? Vaguely. Tell me yeah, more. So they're, they're taking over, as I understand, you know, sort of remnant mall inventory space. And they're, they're putting up storefronts for retailers that are, you know, zero inventory on hand. You order everything online, but you can look, touch, and feel the products within the store, within the shop environment itself. Uh-huh. So, you know, those sorts of trends, which I think are, are interesting and, 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 and definitely future-focused, uh, you know, we keep our eye on. Um, but I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I'm close enough to it today to, to give you much more than that. I mean, there's an element that happens. There's an element of that with the Apple Store. I mean, you've got a lot of people just testing it out in the demos and just buying them offline. I don't think Apple really cares. Yeah, that's a great point. Whatever's whatever's kind of most efficient, and they manage to, you know, consequently, they don't have to have a huge amount of space in those stores in terms of making all their offerings available. You know, it's interesting what you say about eroding margins. You know, one of the, you know, one piece of analysis we've done in the electronics area is finding that, you know, there's so much Internet conversation challenging the notion of those incremental, what do you call it, those, uh, those extended warranties. Sure. And, you know, what's happening now is you've got so much perfect information rising to the top 
stop that is, you know, just, you know, you're, you're so uncertain about whether you need to do this or that in a retail environment, and now you've just got, you know, more data, these consumer cartels of consumer opinion that say, nah, you probably don't need to do it. You know, our own collective empirical evidence suggests that there isn't a payout, and I can see why how that plays out into your commentary earlier. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a real challenge for those guys. Are there any other really important, I mean, you've been just thinking about shopping. I mean, let's step five years out. I mean, what's it going to look like? I mean, lay out and give me a couple of scenarios. I mean, excite our audience with the potential or, you know, or kind of, you know, deflate our romanticism about what it might be. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that the key thing for us and why we, we, we think that this content and data and information as it relates to delivery agent is so important is, is we really truly believe that that sort of emotional connection between viewer and product is, is uh, under, under a true amount um, of, 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 uh, of challenge at this stage, if you will. And, and, you know, you think about going on to a shopping.com or, a, you know, any of the comparison shopping engines, and everybody has the same stuff. So right. it's very difficult outside of your standard price, um, you know, price comparison, feature comparison, to make a purchase decision. I think part of what we envision and we think in this pop culture society of ours that's so exciting about what we're doing is really creating an environment where there is an emotional connection between, you know, a product and the purchaser is a pretty powerful thing. So whether that leads to... um, you know whether that leads to maybe in the last five years. I mean, we do think exact, that in five you know, years we'll price. have virtual channels on our television for every one of our networks. So the same way that we control the ABC uh, shopping experience online, we'll control it on the screen. And you, as a user following your purchase, will be able to you know swap over to the channel and access the entire catalog of products that you have just seen on the screen. We do think that that will that will happen at some point in time, and we'll be in the middle of that. Um, you know, I think I think there are also some some pretty exciting opportunities, um, more on a one-off basis, but on the mobile side. I mean, I think we're we're rolling out some cool applications where you're you're watching a program and you want to purchase uh, the song that you just heard on that show. You can do that from one click from your phone and immediately download download the song. Things of that nature. I mean, there are some pretty exciting things that come out of all of this convergence. But again, for us, it's being disciplined and ensuring that we're you know we're driving value for our key constituents today. So. Um, what about some, I mean, here's, give a reaction to this. I've always wondered, like, why the heck doesn't Kroger or the other folks with the loyalty cards just giving me online access to my, you know, to my shopping list? I mean, the reality is that, you know, I'm a brand marketer from P&G. It's, I mean, there's, you know, if you're kind of reminded of the products that you brought before, you're probably, it's probably going to have a positive impact on loyalty. It increases the odds that you're going to consume more product that you might have otherwise forgotten. And might even allow you to segue into some interesting shopping guides like, oh, based on what you've bought in the past, here's a dynamic Yahoo-style map on how to efficiently get in and out of the store in no time. I mean, why the heck aren't some of the obvious things being pursued in the marketplace? Is it still one of these, we must own the data versus giving the consumers access to it? Or is that just an out-on-Mars concept? You know, I think I think you really have some very real, very real data challenges in a lot of these companies too. If they're operating off of legacy, uh, you know, technical infrastructure, creating a data warehouse capable of doing what you just mentioned, you know, it's it's a it's a real thing. It's a but real endeavor. It's a real it on investment. The company side. What's that? I mean, they already have it on the company side. It's just that you know they're collecting all the data off of shoppers. I mean, what? Why is it so difficult to just make that you know just 
you know, give give their own kind of loyal customers access to it so they can inform their own choices. Yeah, I, th- I think I think if you look under the hood a little bit, I mean, in our Circuit City example, it took us about three and a half years to to, to create that 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 capability. Uh, and primarily because you're operating on systems that, you know, you've got customer records on one side, transactional data on another side, returns somewhere else, all the other stuff that goes in between, you're, you're, you know, you're overlaying your Axiom data, all that stuff that you want to do to do it right. I think it is a real challenge, and it, you know there's seven-figure investments. You got to make sure that you know, the company's bought in and that sort of thing. And, and yeah. my experience is it's it's just oftentimes difficult to get them behind it. You know, I don't know that I can give you anything more than that, except the uh, the reality of the Circuit City experience. I mean, I think the airline industry is showing how there is almost a co-sharing of that type of data between, it's almost the things that, you know, the, the folks you call an 800 number, it's almost like all of that is now migrating to the consumer in the spirit of self-service, you know, you know, you drive the decisions, kind of, you know, make the choice, and I wonder whether that will ultimately begin, that, that kind of, that whole approach will begin to, um, you know, move into the shopping space. It'll be, you know, interesting to evolve. Well, listen, um, Mike, I really appreciate your joining us. You're working on an incredibly exciting ad model at the at, at business at the bleeding edge of, uh, you know, advertising and commerce, and I really appreciate you joining us. Okay, well, thanks for the time. You bet. And thanks to the rest of the audience for joining us with this week's Ad Tech Connect. And another thanks to Jeff Einstein and to Mike Fitzsimmons um, for lending their expertise. Please join us next week when our host will be none other than the ARF's Taddy Hall. And we will look to him to bring excitement, energy, and all that to the next session. Thank you very much. I'm Pete Blackshaw with IntelliSeq. 